Hello and welcome to Months of Sundays, the podcast bringing you political commentary on entertainment media from the perpetual Sunday of suburban ennui. I'm Livy. I'm Reuben. Uh, and we're two finalist uh, undergraduates at the University of Cambridge. We're both studying English literature, but we're currently, because of uh, the nationwide lockdown in the UK, we're currently at home uh, in Brighton, which is where we're both originally from. Uh, Decided to do a podcast like everyone else. uh, We have decided to do a podcast like everybody else. We're boyfriend and girlfriend, which is probably important context uh, in case it comes up later. Uh, We're, yeah, so this, the kind of premise of this podcast is that there was something rotten in our international state before the virus, um, but that the virus is a kind of a good opportunity to talk through how um, particularly particular sort of social phenomenons like um, paranoia and kind of uh, insularity as a sort of symptom, uh, we would say, of kind of late capitalism um, comes to the surface interestingly in the sort of entertainment media of the last few decades. Uh, and, and and how the virus is a kind of particularly interesting context in which to talk about those things. But we kind of hope that this can be something that extends possibly past the virus in time scale. We don't know, but you know. Yeah, it's, and also just in ideas, sort of not only talking about, we won't bore you with lots of things about the virus over and over again, of course. No, we also know nothing about the virus, biologically speaking. <laughs> yeah, we will be talking we nothing at all about the virus <laughs> itself. Uh, yeah, this is about social ramifications, basically. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. To kick off our podcast, we're going to be discussing two films concerning a very obvious topic, but a topical one for that reason, uh, viral paranoia. So we're going to be talking about uh, Todd Haynes' 1999 film, 1995, I think, actually, film Safe, starring Julianne Moore and Alfonso Cuaron's 2006 film, Children of Men. Wow, that was very rem- well-remembered dates off the top of your head. That was very <laughs> good. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so yeah, we're going to be talking about both of those. Um, both of those uh, I've heard, I think we both have um, mentioned in kind of various forms over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we happened to, to watch Safe um, a few weeks before all of this stuff got kind of kicked off. Uh, so yeah, no, it's uh, become weirdly and sort of eerily relevant uh, in the last few weeks. Um, yeah, uh, so I think I think just to kind of t- t- to kick off talking about safe. Uh, so this is not going to be a spoiler-free podcast. That's something that we should probably clarify from the beginning, just because it's yeah, not going to be. Not that a safe is really a film that you can spoil, I'd say. I know, but I mean, I think you don't want to know the ending of any film, do you? Mm, yeah. So yeah. But you have. In Safe, you have a sort of a sense of doom and a sense of what the ending is going to be from the beginning. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so trust your instincts with Safe, I would say. Um, But no, yeah, so Safe is a film about a um, a suburban housewife. A homemaker, she calls herself, doesn't she? A homemaker, yeah. (laughs) Um, Who grows kind of increasingly paranoid that she's got this uh, illness and it's ambiguous all the way through the film whether her symptoms are just uh, psychosomatic or whether they're real. And it's sort of the idea that she's getting. But I think it, it becomes, it, we increasingly get the sense that the symptoms are psychosomatic. We didn't think that from the beginning, yeah. I think. And the protagonist of the film ends up, um, after kind of weeks and months of, of uh, growing gradually more and more ill, um, from this sort of cause that she doesn't understand. She thinks that it could be car fumes. She thinks that it could be all kinds of things associated with the modern world. Yeah, like chemicals in the air is what she's Chemicals, sort of talking about, it, exactly, it? yeah. And, and there's a bit where um, uh, she sees a sign of, for a club of people like her who are, all have these kind of paranoid symptoms. Uh, and, it, and it says something like, are you allergic to modernity? Are you allergic to the modern world? So that it's got that kind of very explicit 
uh, demitization sort of from the beginning. Anyway, so she ends up in a kind of almost a sort of cultish healing center, basically, in yeah. the middle of nowhere, um, uh, presided over by this kind of charismatic but creepy cult figure, uh, cult leader kind of thing, um, who indoctrinates her into sort of absolute belief in in her kind of viral paranoia as uh-huh. a really important thing. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's pretty much yeah. it. Yeah, directed by Todd Haynes, who made... That film about Bob Dylan I've never seen, I'm Not There, which is like Bob Dylan being played by lots of different people. Yeah, Sounds quite cool. including Tilda Swinton, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And Kate Blanchett, I think. Oh, I'm getting mixed no, up. No, I think both of them. It's just that Tilda Swinton always plays bad <laughs> <in> film. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he made Carol, which yeah, I have seen. Yeah, he made, which I have seen, uh, and which is good. I saw it years ago when it actually, well, yeah. a few years ago when it was originally out in cinemas. Uh, and it's quite a different film. Yeah, so yeah. It's, yeah. I think his first film was Poison, which is about the AIDS crisis. Uh, which makes sense, yeah. I guess, given that yeah, the I'm second one's sure about yeah, uh, the the I mean, so it's got, it's got AIDS bits in. Um, so I mean, the, safe definitely the background. A, a, a background is the AIDS crisis. Isn't uh, the it? background is the AIDS crisis, AIDS. but they also make it explicit at one point because the cult leader is both. I can't remember what they call it, the kind of being allergic to modernity, that sort of symptom, but that he he says he both has that and also has AIDS. Oh, so it's kind of yeah, explicitly thematized, like it's brought to the surface. Um but yeah, so anyway, so that's that's safe and that's what safe's about. And me and Ruben have been kind of been discussing what makes safe like such a particularly uncomfortable watch um, and sort of what makes the kind of the paranoia that's endemic to safe feel so kind of contagious in itself to, to us as as watchers. Um, it's, it's quite interestingly shot safe. So uh, there's this thing that happens quite a lot. We, we're in these kind of, uh, at the beginning of the film, we're a lot in these kind of very sterile, pristine environments, which is yeah, what... it's like suburban California, isn't it? It is. It's suburban California and it's very, it all looks very sterile and slightly kind of futuristic housing, like futuristic yeah. of the 90s. It, I mean, bits, bits of them, bits of the sets kind of look almost more 80s, I guess, because it's in that kind of liminal yeah. period slightly. You know, it's only mid 90s. Um, but yeah, kind of futuristic vibes and very sterile. Um, and often uh, in, in in the first sort of few scenes of the film, and it's something that kind of continues throughout the film, uh, wherever the main character is, we linger for a really long time on those exterior shots uh, of the suburban houses. And so we're kind of... So the, given that the film is thematically kind of about constantly seeking these kind of greater insularities and these greater protections from the outside world when we linger for a really long time kind of on on an exterior shot of a house almost to the extent that it gets slightly uncomfortable and we're kind of thinking oh is the camera going to move on um we're kind of sharing this kind of weird almost like agoraphobic impulse that the kind of the the, the main character has yeah you say linger but it's a really long time isn't it it's like almost it feels like up to a minute of just the the exterior shots yeah yeah exactly i mean we haven't seen the film um all the way through for a few weeks but yeah this is definitely how i remember it anyway Yeah. yeah i think um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of it. So, so we're kind of we're really put in the position of of the main character and and get this kind of creeping sense of paranoia. Um, but I think what's particularly interesting about Safe is the kind of difficulty of attributing that paranoia ultimately. Um, so, kind of specifically, what I'm talking about here is is the fact that other than that kind of occasional sort of slightly elliptical reference, you know, allergic to modernity or whatever, we don't really get a kind of symptom or a cause for the paranoia that the yeah. that the housewife is uh, experiencing. Um, that th- for the kind of well for the illness that the housewife is experiencing and and where that's coming from. 
yeah, so kind of it's a very eerie sense, the idea that we, we, we kind of don't understand where this this illness comes from. And I think like we sh- it's worth kind of pausing on that idea of the eerie a little bit. So we kind of get that in these kind of discomforting exterior shots at the beginning of the film as well. But also this kind of unattributable sort of illness, unattributable paranoia. Um, so Mark Fisher, uh, who we're both very big fans of, <laughs> um, uh, and kind of is was a, was a sort of um, political and cultural theorist, I guess, and wrote a couple of different books. Um, he uh, has this idea of the eerie as being essentially to do with agency. So um, an eerie experience is something where you're kind of searching for an agent. So you're kind of searching for a cause. Um, and and what makes something eerie is the idea that you can't quite see the cause or you can't quite see the agents that are moving. So, um, yeah, uh, specifically, I mean, so he gives the, these kind of examples of kind of an empty lot is eerie because you can't, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of get a sense that something might be out there or a cry um, where you don't know when it's where it's emanating from is eerie because you, you can't see the source or the agent. But also the idea that something like capitalism as a system is sort of eerie because you can't see the way that the agents involved are moving the money around. You just get these kind of symptoms without causes, which is a little bit like the pa- the way paranoia and, and illness manifests in SAFE. Um, and this idea of a kind of depoliticized environment in which nonetheless the participants and, and, and the sort of the ill people are kind of very anxious and just have this sort of sourceless anxiety um, is sort of very prescient for SAFE. Um, specifically uh, kind of when they get when the protagonist gets to the sanctuary place the interesting thing about the cult that she ends up in is that it's sort of like uh, a sort of 60s cult a kind of political 60s cult um, like a hippie kind of type thing you know the kind of the way they dress the way they talk about healing and powers and all of this kind of thing but it's very depoliticized unlike unlike that kind of hippie movement so you get um, kind of conversation about uh, how it's better not to read all the world's newspapers now. It's better oh, to just yeah. shut yourself off and keep yourself insular. Yeah, and they sing sort of like folky songs, don't they? That sound like people like they all sat and sat sat around in circles with a leader, like playing an acoustic guitar and singing like like Joni Mitchell or Joan Baezy songs. But without... instead of the songs being about like not going to Nam or whatever, <laughs> they're about like <laughs> not getting ill. Yeah. And, and, and illness is, is this kind of very depoliticized thing. It's all made very personal about what you do and what you interact with and, and, and what was the fault that led to your illness kind of almost bringing in this weird sort of slightly Christian idea of sin as well. Yeah, definitely. Kind of that is definitely like, like behind it. It's sort of, yeah, a notion of Christian sin as very individual like almost like an original sin therefore because it is like inherent to the world that surrounds and inherent to these people rather than sort of given to them or something yeah rather than something that's constructed socially it's, it's like inherent to them yeah. as individuals something whereas they have to think, work out as individuals yeah, whereas the film really does show that the the the, the the paranoia and the illness is constructed socially i think yes because the the basically the protagonist's atmosphere at the beginning of the film is kind of very arid and stifling but she definitely doesn't have the sort of vocabulary or the wherewithal to realize that we see yeah. the protagonist kind of almost stuttering for words a little bit like we're doing now on our first ever podcast um throughout the film she's kind of struggling towards articulation and we have lots of these very pregnant 
almost painful pauses where she's asked a question about the illness or about whatever and she can't quite come to a, an articulate answer and whatever comes out is very stumbling kind of very anodyne and every time she speaks you think that you're going to get this kind of moment of revelation where she understands the illness or she understands what's happened to her but actually it, it, it's all kind of very stifled so again yeah. that leads back to this kind of this idea of unattributable paranoia this kind of this sense of something in the in the atmosphere but basically what we get the sense of is that this is an illness this is kind of inflected by her environment by this kind of very stifling arid suburban environment um kind of even though she's in a sense a sort of winner of capitalism she's really kind of losing out from yeah. the stiflingness of the system yeah there's a scene with her husband who's sort of a generic businessman right and yeah her, and the husband is getting annoyed at her for saying saying the wrong things or something for, for not laughing along to a joke oh, of yeah, somebody exactly. around the around the table in this kind of very again stifling claustrophobic yeah. sort of dinner party atmosphere where they're all making very kind of misogynistic and jokes as well i think you could read the husband as, as a victim in the film probably but it's not what the film it's really not what, shows it's not what the film's about yeah it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's all from her perspective he's sort of part of that same stifling atmosphere where he doesn't really allow her any space yeah. and is a sort of a, like you say like uh, a symbol of the capitalist world that surrounds her that she can't really sort of penetrate yeah uh, just to clarify I mean I know it's a, it's a kind of a stereotype that sort of you know, people kind of theorising about pop culture just to attribute anything and everything to capitalism. I think this is very much explicitly what this film is about um, because it's about that kind of very specific um, kind of shallow atmosphere in um, uh, in California, California in that kind of sort of late 90s, um, it, well, mid-90s era, um, where, I mean, the, the, the 90s was in a way a kind of more depoliticised time because we yeah. hadn't had... so. So 80s kind of age of individualism, rise of capitalism, rise of kind of modern capitalism, basically, you know, rise, yeah. of, rise of neoliberalism, uh, free markets, et cetera, et cetera. 90s, we hadn't really had the fallout from that yet. So we were kind of living in this depoliticized cutoff era. Today, we're getting the fallout from that. Today, we're getting the kind of delayed reaction to, yeah, exactly. to all those things coming back. So I think what we get the sense of is... is um, a world where this woman has very few roles. We see her kind of worrying about sofas and things at the kind of the beginning of the sofa, yeah. outside of this sort of quite dull consumer circuit uh, and her background is kind of very bleached and blanched and sort of yeah. yeah and there's lots of adverts in the film and stuff as well isn't there yeah like you see lots of billboards and things like that but and it's very sort the of... cult itself which is supposed to be this liberation is kind of sold to her in that was a very exactly, consumerist yeah. way and as like well through a tv advert it's sort of recontextualized 60s paranoia which was very politicized recontextualized for as you say a 90s context of depoliticization and sort of individualist like thinking which doesn't really have any basis in any reality therefore yeah yeah definitely yeah so it's kind of i think so it, it's this struggling for articulation and this failure of articulation in a kind of newly depoliticized world but which the characters in the world sort of don't really see or realize as being newly depoliticized they just kind of have this sort of sourceless discomfort which exactly, manifests yeah. as the illness um, and then, so I, I kind of, I think, I think the kind of the absolute sort of pinnacle of this feeling of, of failure of articulation in the film um, is the, the sort of penultimate scene of the film, where um, the, the woman has been getting kind of gradually, the protagonist has been getting gradually more ill throughout the film, 
Um, and sort of so, so the more kind of claustrophobic attention she gets, actually, the worse her condition gets. Yeah, and we do see her sort of physically deteriorating. We, we see her physically deteriorating, exactly. Um, and again, although the symptoms are presumably psychosomatic, there is something very sinister about this kind of physical deterioration exactly, as well yeah. that is kind of unattributable to us by us as as as, as watchers of the film. Um, but yeah, so in the penultimate scene. Uh, the woman is thrown a sort of surprise birthday thing by the cult, uh, and she has to she has to give a speech, and she says, "Oh, I've never given a speech before oh, in yeah. my life." And you think you're going to get this moment of kind of realization or articulation where she explains what the illness is and what it means to her, and 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 you kind of think after all of these failures of articulation, this is going to be the kind of grand conclusion of the film where you kind of understand what's going on, or you want, or you have her have a sort of moment of of like almost like agnoresis, like realization, a kind yeah. of um, uh, yeah, a, a sort of revelation. Um, but actually what you get is again sort of stumbling and anodyne and, and her struggling towards words and she kind of tails off and she says, oh, you know, it's just important to when you're going into buildings and when you're looking at labels talking about the illness and she and she just she sort of stumbles yeah, to a halt. It's really hard to watch. It's it? it's really painful to watch. I mean the whole I think the whole film is a very difficult watch yeah. actually. Um sort of squeamish. It is very squeamish, yeah. Uh, Ruben teases me because uh whenever we watch anything kind of vaguely uncomfortable I pause it every two minutes because I can't <laughs> stand it. Um but yeah, safe is definitely if you're like <laughs> me and, and you can't watch anything at all squeamish, safe is definitely one that you'll be pausing every two minutes. Uh yeah, no, so so kind of yeah, so I think I I mean it should be pretty clear to you by now why we're talking about safe in terms of viral paranoia and what's going on currently in the world um but i mean i think so obviously the interesting thing about uh the response to coronavirus kind of as it stands is that this is a very real threat it's very different in that sense to the sort of psychosomatic threat and safe but of course we're getting a similar sort of paranoid fallout from uh, sort of as an effect of that yeah Yeah, there's that bit in the simpsons where the TV executives are trying to think of an illness. They're trying to think of like a new thing to sort of to make money off by inventing something to make the news about, basically. And so they think, oh, you know, we'll, we'll say there's an illness in the in the air, and then they end up sort of actually engineering this illness and making it an actual real <laughs> illness in order to. Yeah, so it's like that. <laughs> Which, if you're as paranoid as us, it might feel like all of this is. Who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think I think that kind of. But I think what I the, the main thing that I've taken from from safe as, as being kind of pertinent to uh, the coronavirus pandemic and how we're all kind of handling it is this idea of sort of uh, a kind of aimless decontextualized paranoia, you know, something you can't see um, and, and, and you can't quite place your finger on why it's so uncomfortable. Um, but also this idea of kind of endless retreat, which is what happens um, in the film as the protagonist moves into gradually smaller and smaller and more insular spaces, trying to shut out the outside world, trying to block out the hum of newspapers and all of that kind of thing. And it kind of ends up in this, yeah, this very insular world where she's actually no better off, uh, but she's just shutting herself in. And we, and we get the last shot of her in the film as in this kind of very, uh, like almost sort of space age yeah, type. Like an igloo, isn't it? Ig- like an igloo, like a kind of, uh, yeah, zero contamination igloo that yeah. she ends up in telling herself she's beautiful right telling herself she's beautiful is sort of looking in a mirror this kind of endless endless insularity sort of facilitated by this kind of mirrored space as well um and i think yeah that's just very pertinent i think to the way 
that some people have been responding to the virus. It's really interesting because obviously we kind of want to retreat into insularity and we want to retreat into these kind of enclosed spaces. And we literally have to because we're in quarantine as well. Um, yeah, uh, sort of in the in the paranoia of the virus. But it, it, it's interesting how these spaces are almost kind of fantasized about and fetishized. And I see that a lot at the moment, I think, on social media, um, the way that people are kind of dealing with um, exterior threat is to kind of project this image of, of this sort of lovely insular home space and this kind of sacred space of the home and I was kind of quite interested in almost reminded of kind of 19th century sort of bourgeois fantasies of the home the idea of the kind of the woman as the angel of the home and and the home is this kind of retreat which you come back to after sort of a a hard day's grind in the you know leading a leading up a factory or in the bank or whatever you do being being the dad in mary poppins (laughs) all those classic 19th century processions um but you know uh, the, the the home is this sort of fantasy of retreat um, and, and I think I've seen that a lot on social media, the kind of the image that people are trying to project out um, with the virus. And it's and that's interesting, that kind of influx and um, sort of uh, reflux sort of uh, relationship as well, isn't it? Because people are kind of shutting themselves at once sort of inundated by, by news from the internet and also sort of at points choosing to shut themselves off from the news and choosing to create these sort of crafted little spaces of insularity, but also then to send something out into the world. So not to be completely insular, yeah. but to project this image of insularity, the image of the perfect home on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is, as this kind of you know quarantine zone, this free from the world zone. And it's weird, this kind of holiday atmosphere that's kind of, I, I think, I think kind yeah. of very... Um, sort of pervasive in the pandemic, weirdly, like uh, projecting it, like almost sort of making the home into a holiday home, making the home into a sort of retreat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I- which is what what she's trying to do. I mean, she's literally a homemaker, I have to say, a homemaker in the film, which is a sort of jokey term used for her lack of direction and yeah. meaning in her life, I uh, guess. I think it's also significant that in the film, she's she kind of is quite coerced and... Um, uh, sort of very much in the environs of her husband trying to make it her own space because, for example, the the child that they have joint care of happens to be only the husband's child as well. So you kind of you kind of think originally, oh, she might have her son to sort of root her to this place and so on. But it turns out that the stepson, you know, she doesn't have a very close relationship with him and so on. So she's kind of actually completely at a loss and kind of cut loose. But yeah, yeah as you say, homemaking, trying to construct this sort of ideal uh, domestic space. Yeah, and retreating into sort of different places is interesting i've I've seen lots of um i saw i've read a news article a few days ago about people putting up their airbnbs sort of cynically losing money they obviously people whose job is to own airbnbs deserve to be losing money on them <laughs> but um putting up their airbnbs advertising them as exactly that like as a sort of retreat from the virus somewhere that you could go and like rent this sort of nice place in the woods or whatever a sort of like Thoreau Walden type thing where you can go and retreat into these into the woods and like yeah like chop wood yourself and 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 pretend the rest of the world doesn't exist exactly and it is that pretending the world doesn't exist I mean of course Thoreau was sort of sort of saw a political aim to the to his um retreating into the woods he saw it as a sort of expression of his self-reliance and his you know him not needing the rest of the world and things like that but it's been very and and he saw it as an expression also of his sort of civil resistance to the government he didn't like paying taxes and things like that but I, I mean his politics especially now obviously seem very misguided but we're quite we're fairly radical at the time but now that that idea of that 
that going and building a cabin in the woods has been very depoliticized in the exact same way mm. and is treated as commodified exactly and festivized like you see lots of people sort of just posting images of like like even before this like people posting yeah. images of sort of secluded houses that they want to live in and things like that yeah fantasies of seclusion are i think worrying because i think you know kind of anything that um is a sort of fantasy of wanting to shut yourself off from the rest of the world and create this kind of perfect yeah. ideal parallel space says a lot more about the world than it does about that yeah. kind of fantasy on, parallel all space. your what you think about the world yeah, as well exactly. yeah exactly yeah 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 um, and, and i'd like to clarify as well we're kind of not I mean, I think this is an instinct that we all have. We're not blaming people for this kind of instinct to retreat because I think it's kind of a product of the society that we live in. You yeah. know, I think we live in a very insular a society that is already very insular, a society that kind of pro- prioritizes um, the individual or the individual and the family, uh, as Margaret Thatcher said very worryingly <laughs> and influentially in the 1980s. Uh, you know, this is, again, a paraphrase, but... Um, there's no such thing as uh, society. There's only individuals and their families. I think we're kind of really seeing that in the fallout of yeah. the and coronavirus. And we are actually forced into family units at the moment as well. Yeah, which is quite, I mean, it's quite, I mean, it, it's unfortunately it is in a way necessary, this kind of, you know, I mean, not specifically in family units, but to contain the virus, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's kind of building and cementing those structures that are already kind yeah. of forcing us into more kind of isolated isolated and atomized yeah. units it's probably an s- expression of how we are already sort of forced into family units that we are now being definitely forced into family units because it's the way that we had to, it's the way they had to organize it and i mean on the subject of family units children of men really links in well there because it is i'm sure you've all seen it a story of a world a britain in fact a sort of dystopian britain set just after 2006 when it was filmed when of complete infertility and it's about 10 15 20 years even maybe after this crisis has sort of been dealt with and it opens with sort of a world which is uncannily like our own but it is has this like backdrop of seeming very like there's something slightly strange about what's going on in it yeah and i think it's um it, it's an interesting one to talk about again in terms of insularities and sort of self-protective motions so the idea in children of men is that it's a kind of hyper paranoid world because of, of the virus that has swept through decimating the population here a real virus unlike in safe of course um but a, a similar one that's kind of similarly sort of difficult to actually see um, or, or make manifest so it kind of mainly yeah. seems to manifest in the paranoia and the behavior of the participants of yeah, the society you were talking about the sort of paranoia is a maybe slightly biblical thing in safe and it's very true in children men as well where it's a very nativity-esque yes. narrative uh, where it's a woman sort of bringing her baby and with 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 a guy who's not the baby's father yeah through this oh, like yeah. on, a, on a trek through this world and like to this sort of point of salvation what you think might be salvation yeah. might not be the ending is very ambiguous i think yeah the ending is very ambiguous and uh yeah and, and you kind of get that backdrop also of religious paranoia um sort of on the subject of religion um kind of, uh, of people sort of thinking that they've been damned whether the, the resurgence of of uh, kind of extremist oh, yeah, religious of cults and groups sort of in a parallel to the kind of the the cult in response to the so-called illness in safe um, but yeah, no, but it's sort of insularity is again very, very relevant to children of men because we get the fencing in of the borders. Uh, we get a real paranoia about refugees, which has become sadly very pertinent to our own times, where kind of the rise of the far right um, is becoming sort of has become increasingly mainstream, uh, and where paranoia about um, refugees and sort of uh, anything other to to the kind of the cultures that we move in 
uh, is is very sort of uh, prevalent, uh, even more so than it was in. I mean, a lot more so than it was in two thousand and six, actually, when the film was made. So it's quite yeah. a pertinent and a uh, it, film in that sense. Yeah, I mean, it's still the sort of. I mean, it's the sort of post Iraq War breakdown yeah. and disillusionment, isn't it? I think Children of Men sort of lies behind, and so in that way, it's very different to say. I mean, that's probably why, in some senses, that the virus is definitely real and Children of Men, and yeah. is like, and it's an expression of society. It's a diagnosis, an expression of societal illness that he is like Quran is specifically looking at and pointing yeah. out rather than in safe words it's very sort of decontextualized and depoliticized thing well, well no because no because i think the whole point about safe is that it's not decontextualized and depoliticized well, no, the whole point about safe is, is that yeah. the, the the reaction to it is depoliticized exactly yeah, that's what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah but it's actually about the film is about depoliticization yeah, the film is definitely not the film was anything but depoliticized yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah no no that that's a very subtle point yeah no um and, and i think yeah just i mean we, we just wanted to talk briefly about children and men because it's it felt um wrong not to pay lip service to it it seems sort of so relevant to to what's going on now um uh because obviously we do move in increasingly paranoid times where the uh literally i mean you know the, the borders <laughs> may literally be coming down any day i mean you know travel yeah, is being course, restricted yeah. uh it, it kind of i mean it's difficult because what um the government our government is having to do at the moment is sort of you know necessary and contingent result of a, of a very specific circumstance but kind of so would so would similar measures in any crisis be if you see what i mean yeah so it's it's more children of men is more about the fallout from that kind of insularity and i think that there's something worrying yeah about a culture that's tending to that insularity anyway and yeah. then a crisis kind of tips it over the edge and what children of men sort of demonstrate i think is that the crisis is the crisis and the reaction to it and the government powers that may be being expressed in this crisis. I mean, we're we're not at a point to say at the moment. We're very very early on, mm. but it seems like obviously the sort of the 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 way that the government has been lent the powers to much more authoritarian measures than anyone would have been allowed before, and the way that people are sort of celebrating it, I think, is mm. shown in Children of Men that the government, which you never really see, and you don't don't really see any, except in the sort of horrible refugee camps and things yeah. and, at the border, you see the sort of receipts of their violence and their complete apathy towards the population without seeing them and their actual sort their their their, their sort of power structures and things and mm. so i think children of men demonstrates the way that they're another sort of invisible force to be paranoid exactly, about yeah. Yeah. and it, it demonstrates how reaction to something sort of global and clearly sort of like that, that, that needs to be deal, dealt with can mean that the authoritarian measures that the government is going to now implement will, will and can be used maybe for other more sinister things yeah. later on down the line because they've been given the authority to do so. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not about um, the measures in themselves being wrong in the first instance. It's about the yeah the the, the slippage that might go on. And we wanted, we thought it was worth again uh, bringing in a little bit of Mark Fisher because he writes really interestingly on Children of Men, um, uh, and I think it, it's something that we can it's something that we can relate back to safe as well. Um, what what, what we're about to, to say about Mark Fisher's Ruben if you just read the, the little quote oh, out. Yeah, so this is from the start of his book Capitalist Realism which is a which is where he points out very convincingly in about 80 pages that the way that our culture sort of performs any sort of sense of criticism of capitalism or anything is within the context of accepting that very same system mm, yeah and so he uses children of men as an example because he says in one of the key scenes of Alfonso Cron's 2006 film Clive Owen's character Theo visits a friend at Battersea Power Station which is now some combination of government building and private collection cultural treasures Michelangelo's David Picasso's Guernica 
Pink Floyd inflatable pig are preserved in a building that is itself re- a refurbished heritage artifact, it's Battersea Power Station. Uh, this is our only glimpse into the lives of the elite, hold up against the effect of a catastrophe which has caused mass sterility. Mass sterility. No children have been born for a generation. Theo asks the question, how can all this matter if there will be no one to see it? The alibi can no longer be future generations, since there will be none. The response is nihilistic hedonism. I try not to think about it. So Mark Fisher's sort of point is he he uses this example to illustrate the way in in which modern culture um, uh, is kind of tending to this sort of nihilism, this kind of... uh, an end to production, a sort of ceaseless regurgitation of pre-moulded cultural forms, a kind of hoarding up, hoarding, sort of shoring up our fragments against our ruins um, in, in a kind of, yeah, a sort of protective movement that doesn't actually produce anything new. He also describes in the same chapter um, this this culture that sort of hoards and, and, and it is kind of unproductive. Um, uh, a culture that uh, where, where the children are no longer capable of producing surprises and he sees children of men as a sort of allegory for such a culture and I think that there's a real relationship between that sort of sterility and the insularity that we've been talking about in SAFE um, those kind of very sterile, unproductive, unvocal, unarticulate environments and, and, and a kind of holding oneself up against the world or refusing to engage with the world um, which I think is quite inter- interesting and pertinent for our times. I think we live in times where we need to remember to speak and to think kind of about everything that's going on. I mean, whatever the sort of whatever the I think I think it's also important not to sort of quote unquote overreact, although it's very difficult uh, not to overreact uh, sort of in the global situation that we're currently in. Um, but also I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, without overreacting, I think it's important to weigh up what people are saying about the virus and to be to remember to be critical and careful because it's you don't have to make the virus itself political. The virus is a kind of biological event that is happening in our world and is happening to us all. But the way it's dealt with and the way people speak about it and the way that society responds to it. Uh, is is political, and I mean, it comes. I think what we're particularly interested in on this podcast is more the way in which the world already was. Um, this kind of this sterile tendency, this kind of tendency to a stopping up of speech, almost uh, to, to sort of further insularities, which I mean, I think people often sort of see as very brought out by social media. Although that's something that can obviously be critiqued. Kind of social media is the, the um, as a sort of insular kind of bubble like little world where you only interact with the people that you kind of already know and you kind of create these little these little sort of inward looking worlds of your of your own friends and acquaintances and then you get into massive arguments with anybody who kind of doesn't agree with you. Yeah. I mean I think I think I think that has a kind of a big relationship to the way that we're currently responding to the virus. And just to wrap up kind of on that note uh, about about social media and about um, the way that we're kind of responding to the crisis and to what extent sort of a viral paranoia is gripping us uh, I think it's interesting to kind of dwell a little bit on that idea of going viral which has been made much of uh, to, to yeah, various I haven't actually seen that have you not seen no. that well I think it's, it's to various levels of amusing musingness of the joke to be honest <laughs> um, yeah. yeah no um, uh, yeah I don't know I mean I think people have been playing with the idea of, of viruses and viral and, and that sort of thing yeah. but it's I mean I think it's more than like um, it's more than a sort of coincidence of vocabulary 
uh, it's a kind of uh, the idea of something going viral, the idea of a world where where things sort of spread sort of super quickly. It's almost as if we kind of have this paranoid network in place, sort of ready to deal with the virus. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting because a network is something that's communicative and that brings things together. And in a way, the internet is this kind of amazing tool that we've got, especially in times like this, because it's it's bringing people together who are otherwise literally physically kind of um, cordoned off and, and isolated. Um, but there, there can also be something sort of insular and inward looking about the internet, especially when we sort of project outwards these kind of idealised little, little pictures of our lives, these idealised yeah. realms, or when we choose to only interact with people who agree with us or who share a kind of very specific little world, which the algorithms which determine most of our kind of interactions on social media actually make sure that we do, even whether even when mm. we don't want to, because we're kind of suggested and exposed um, to things that we that, that seem like things that we already like. So we kind of get this kind of slightly unbalanced uh, insular, inward-looking version of, of the world, and uh, it, it kind of so it, we have the network of viral paranoia. Paranoia spreads very quickly, um, but also uh, we're kind of in a, in a pre uh, a pre insular sort of sort of um, yeah a, a network that tends to insularity already as well, which yeah, is an exactly. interesting tension between those two things. Mm-hmm. I just think yeah, um, and yeah, I don't know is is that is that everything or that's it, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, so I mean, I yeah, I hope you've enjoyed listening yeah, to us thank waffle you for on. As well. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it should become more structured, it, but hopefully not too structured because it's just our sort of thoughts about things, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we we want it to be a kind of tangled web that you can make sense of if you choose. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, tune in next time we put put one out. Yeah, and- exactly. And the police make it hard wherever I may go, and I ain't got no home in this world anymore.